Hey mom friend, I am officially back from maternity leave and today in this episode, I am going to share my birth story and quite honestly to be fully transparent with you and to know that I'm keeping it real over here is that one, I actually debated on sharing this story with you today just because there are just some things about what happened that are traumatizing and left with PTSD and still processing really what happened. And from what I know, from listening to birth stories and from people who tell birth stories and after we had amazing birth stories here on this podcast, what I've learned is that sometimes with birth stories, we have to tell them for the sake of processing. And so that's what I'm here today. So in this episode, I'm going to be sharing with you what happened, what I'm still learning, how I'm still processing, because let me tell you, as a childbirth educator, there really is so much that you put into preparing for birth. I mean, you can check off the boxes, dot your I's, cross your T's, do everything right, but sometimes things just end up not working out the way that they had planned or you had planned, But also, too, there are some things that you possibly could not prepare for. So as we listen to today and as you listen to my birth story today, you might hear some coos in the background, those type of things, because let me tell you, I actually did have him and he is amazing. And I'm so thankful for life and I'm thankful for his life, my life, and just to be able to hold him. And after today, you will understand why I'm so appreciative of that. All right, I'll see you inside. Hey mama, welcome to Simplify Birth and Motherhood. I am Amanda. I am a wife and mom of four. I have had a hospital birth, unexpected C-section, a few home births, and now I am a birth advocate, childbirth educator, and your cheerleader in the toughest hood of them all, motherhood. Do you wish you knew what options were available to you when becoming a new mom or adding more to the mix? Are you ready to nurture and build up your mom gut so you can be more confident, educated, and bold? In this podcast, you will begin to understand, find support, and turn knowledge into power through education and resources for pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and for the early years of motherhood. If you are ready to get clarity to empower your birth and motherhood journey, then throw up your unbrushed hair, hike up your high-waisted pants, because sister, (laughs) I know you are wearing them. Put the baby in the ergo, and let's start feeding our God-given mom guts. See you inside. Hello. I am so excited to be here. It feels actually kind of weird to be back considering I've taken six weeks off. It's just mind-blowing to me that it's been six weeks. And then considering I actually did not really plan on being this long gone, quite honestly. But a lot of unexpected things that happen. As you guys can hear, my baby's in the background. He is beautiful. He's amazing. And I'm just here sharing my story, not only because I feel forced to do it because I'm like practicing what I'm preaching, but just as a way of processing and healing. Because anytime that I've shared this story, and which has really not been a lot, you guys, this is not something I'm like screaming from the rooftops and being like, someone please like come ask me about my birth story. Or yes, I'm totally up for sharing my birth story. It's taking me a while to get to this point. And I'm here to say that sometimes it's like that. Um, we were listening to a 
birth story from our friend Elise and she had said sometimes you read all these things about these amazing births and you prepare for one and you think your birth is going to go that way and of course it's okay to have hopeful thinking but at the same time that just did not end up happening you guys um and I'm a childbirth educator and so this is me also telling you that just because I'm a childbirth educator and I've had beautiful births before all at home or one of them was a c-section but even that one came out to be amazing considering the circumstances sometimes they just don't go according to plan so I'm here sharing this story with you as a way of something like a self-therapy type of thing but hoping that you listening whoever you are that this can be some type of an encouraging thing for you to one either heal or know that you're not alone in this. So we're going to jump right into it, but we're going to go back in time a little bit, take a little bit of a time leap, um, probably around 40 weeks. You know, we obviously everybody's like, when is the baby going to be born? When is the baby? Thankfully this time around, I did not really have anybody asking, are you in labor yet? (laughs) You can hear him sneezing. So I'm not going to apologize for all the little baby sounds in the back because it's just life. But in general, he's here with me. So, and that is what I'm very thankful for. But so around 40 weeks when I was not going into labor, we weren't really concerned. My midwife was not really concerned about the fact that I wasn't going into labor because the reason is, is because when we had sat down around 40 weeks, my midwife and I went over my records. So this is why it's very important when you do switch providers or wherever you are going to receive care that you do have your records from any previous births and things like that to look back on. So that way we can essentially see a pattern And that's essentially what I was really trying to do, particularly with my provider. Not that she didn't know, but just almost kind of like a reassurance. Because when 40 weeks came around, knowing my history is not going into labor at 40 weeks. I really was not expecting to have him at all that week or even before or right on time. I mean, there was a little bit of this hopeful thinking that, oh, maybe I'll go in early on time or before. But in the back of my mind, I always knew like, we're not going to have a baby at 40 weeks. And nobody in my camp, nobody on my birth team really believed that that was going to happen. So there really was no concern of like, why aren't we going to labor? You're already 40 weeks and two or 40 weeks and three and 40 weeks and four. There was really no concern because we had sat down and look at my records. I remember at my prenatal appointment and we went over it and it was like, oh, okay, you ended up having your first one at this many weeks and this many weeks and your second and your third. And so we weren't really concerned. It wasn't until about 41 weeks. And in the 40 weeks, there were really, there was no pressure to start doing any inducement measures as far as doing any interventions. Because whether it's medical or not, when we are trying to rush the process, whether it's through homeopathic means, natural means, uh, doing something to get uh, labor going, it still is considered a intervention, right? It is. And so whether it's medically or not, so we weren't really doing anything at that point. And quite honestly, I think everybody here and including you, you know that I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of trying to rush the process. I, you know, am very much for my baby will tell me when he's ready to be born, those types of things. 
And there was really no recommendations that I was taking at that point. And either my provider to my midwife was not really recommending anything as far as inducement measures. But she did make it very clear that once 41 weeks roll around that we probably have to start thinking about those things. And I, in my mind, I was like, oh, we're not going to have to think about that because I usually have my baby into 41 weeks. So as time goes on, we hit 41 weeks and I'm pretty confident that we are going to have this little guy that week. I mean, every time my husband called or anytime there was any type of commotion, contractions, you know, Braxton Hicks, any sign of anything, you know, we were always very encouraged by it because we were like, okay, everything's great. And the fact too, that everything was, as far as my prenatals, everything looked very healthy. So there really, again, was no concern even at that point. And going into my 41 week that we were like, oh, something's not right. And so with that, we are into 41 weeks. And this is where things kind of start as 41 weeks, it progresses and nothing is happening that I'm like, okay, this is taking a little bit longer than what I what it should. But I was not panicking whatsoever. I wasn't even concerned. I was very much relaxed on my baby will tell me when he's ready because I know the science. And this is part of what was difficult, particularly during my pregnancy and something that was a really hard balance to figure out because I'm pregnant But then I'm also an educator, so I know the facts, I know the process, and also I've done this before, and I've, and it was really also to something where, you know, I think every time we get pregnant and are going to have a baby, we think, well, that's not what happened in my last birth, and every birth is different, but you still kind of bank on knowing your pattern and knowing, because you know your body, you know what happened before. What we do in those cases sometimes is we fall back on that when we think about our current pregnancies. And so as we're into 41 weeks, we're getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer to 42 weeks. And here in Texas, what really put the pressure on here in Texas, and this is true in a lot of states, is that once you hit 42 weeks, what the midwife has to do is they have to transfer your care over to a medical provider. And that was something that as we were into 41 weeks and still no baby, waking up with still no baby, it was getting closer to that time. So that put a lot of pressure. And this was just so incredibly frustrating for me, in all honesty, because my provider, who is so supportive of, I know you want this home birth. And my husband was like, we know you want this home birth. And so now we were beginning to question well, let's try some inducent measures. And I starting that was not particularly comfortable, but I also was open to it because I so wanted to have this home birth. I mean, there were so many different aspects of this whole idea of having a home birth. I mean, it wasn't just the fact of, oh, just to be able to say I had my babies at home. It was knowing what type of care came with the home birth, now that my kids were older, I really wanted them to be able to experience that. My kids were looking very much forward to being a part of the whole experience. And so we, and for us, my husband and I had kind of come to this conclusion because towards the end, you know, I was be, I was experiencing a lot of different anxiety. I was just very ready to be done, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally ready to be done, just particular with 
pregnancies because there are a lot of different end stuff in my pregnancy that I just was not a fan of having to worry about anymore. I was like, I just want to be done so that I don't have to worry about this anymore. Or I don't have to wonder when he's going to come. And so particularly my husband and I had a conversation and we're like, I think this is going to be our last. And we, at that point, were like, okay, if we have the home birth, it will kind of put this really nice ending to this chapter and season of our lives and home birth was like that cherry on top of that Sunday for us because we had all these amazing births our children were all healthy and great amazing great pregnancies those types of things were this one we were like this is going to close that door for us so we were very much looking forward to that and very much looking for that as our goal and the end in mind And so when we were thinking about 41 weeks and the fact that I was still not having a baby, no, really no signs of labor. And I know, and I knew in the back of my mind that that's completely normal, that it was something, especially in my track record, I just like to cook my babies a little bit longer than maybe most women or some women or the standard, you know, boxed, we put you in a box type of um, care just based off my records. This is why I thought it was very important at my 41 or my 40 week that we went over my records to kind of be reminded of that or just know that that was a pattern and something that was very common for myself and for my body to do. And the fact that, you know, my third I've shared with you guys, didn't think I was going to go into labor. And I did that afternoon and had him that night. So I knew going into 41 weeks that that could be a possibility for us. That could be something that could happen. So there really was no still concern. And there really was no like, oh my goodness, why this is not happening. It wasn't until we got more closer to 42 weeks that we really started to kind of question that. So doing the inducement measures was as a way to still try to accomplish that goal of putting that end cap on this chapter of our lives, but also to be very supportive of home birth. Because that is essentially what I really want. And that's what I really wanted at the time. But as time was going on, I just remember feeling like, okay, maybe this is something that's not going to happen. But as we were doing these inducement measures, I mean, literally trying everything, you guys, everything and nothing was working. I mean, you're talking, I let alone probably need therapy on castor oil because I took so much castor oil and it just did not work. And it wasn't, I mean, herbs, bloom back cohosh, doing all types of things to get myself going, to just even initiate it. But every single time, as probably... 42 weeks was on a Monday. So as Friday, I was just very mentally exhausted only because I just felt like every time I did these inducement measures, I felt like it was just knocking my confidence down more and more. Every time that my provider was like, well, we need to try doing this. We still need to do this because once this time comes around, we're going to be going here. I, every time I did it, it just felt like I was just knocking my confidence down. But also too, I really felt like everybody who was encouraging these measures for a good intention because of the fact that I wanted this home birth so bad and that was my goal and they were only just supporting my goal. And I think my husband too said, we just need, I want you to have the assurance that we tried everything that we could before it resorting to plan B. And so 
when we had did that, it just mentally really rocked me. It was like, people don't believe in me. Every time I do this, I felt like nobody was trusting my own body and almost kind of like the self-doubt, like you have, you know, doubts about, you know, the person that you're supporting. It's just not a good feeling being that person who, you know, you have doubts about. And so when we had talked about doing these natural comfort measures, I was just really every day I was like, this is just not what I want to do. I don't want to do this, but I have pressure. And honestly, even as a provider and somebody who is very strongly, very good about voicing their opinions, not really afraid of confrontation, not really afraid about speaking up, not really afraid about fighting for stuff. I did feel pressure to do these things, but in now looking back, I think, well, obviously they were all with good intentions. So then finally I had sought counsel from a really good friend of mine who was also a midwife who actually was my midwife beforehand. And I was talking to her and sharing with her a little bit of my heart and what I was feeling. And she had just said, she's like, it sounds like you just want, just want to stop doing these interventions altogether and just find peace because these things were not bringing me peace. They were not bringing me mental peace. And the fact that every time I tried them, nothing would happen. It just would not, it was not bringing me mental peace. And we all know that birth is a, not just a physical thing. It's a psychological thing. It's something that in your mind is also a major factor when it comes to birth. And I felt like that was just not rectified or that had not been reconciled quite yet. So I just thought, okay, if I take care of that and just find peace, then I think I was very hopeful that that would start things going. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop taking this stuff and I'm just going to let my body do what it needs to do. Give my body a rest, at least wait this many hours before I even think about attempting to do anything else. And that's what I did. I waited, but then as we're getting close, it was Friday. I decided to do that. Saturday rolled around Sunday. It wasn't until Sunday evening that I was like, well, okay, we waited till the weekend. Now we need to kind of sit and reevaluate. And so my midwife actually recommended that I do a biophysical profile just to check up on baby because Monday was 42 weeks and Monday actually was the holiday. And she said, well, 42 weeks at this time, we'll wait until this day and we'll go in at this time. But just know that if we don't have a baby at this time, that is what we will be doing because of the state law. And of course, I want my midwife to follow the law. And of course, I want her to be able to take care of other families besides mine. So I don't want to put her licensure on the line because that could be a form of discipline for her if they find out that she didn't transfer me and then I end up having the baby at home. And it was, yeah, that could have been a whole mess in itself. So I wasn't going to do that to my provider. I wasn't going to have her compromise that. So I was like, okay, fine. But before that, I mean, there was a lot of mental, mental reconciliation happening. I mean, lots of crying, lots of grieving the fact that I probably would not have this home birth, which was really important to me. And I just remember going through the mental process, praying, do a lot of searching, finding a lot of comfort and just trying to find something to tell me, keep holding on, keep, keep going. And, but the only thing that couldn't really help me in that moment was just trust, not trust the process because obviously trust the process too, but really it was just trust the Lord. 
And it wasn't like a definitive, like, trust the Lord because you're going to have this home birth. It was just an all around trust the Lord. And it was like, I'm going to be with you. And, you know, just believing that God was with me and believing that, you know, and trusting that God had everything under control. And so I began speaking grieving this process of I'm not going to have a home birth and everything that came along with it. And the fact that even amongst that grieving, I was still really fighting for it. I was like, no, this is what I really want. Like, this is what I want. My husband was right there supporting me. And it probably came to a point where we were like, well, let's try this castor oil stuff again. And I tried the midwife's brew a few times and it was, ugh. Guys, when I think about it, it still makes me gag. It is disgusting. And so we ended up trying that, but then still things started kind of picking up a little bit. Remember one night, particularly Tuesday night or Monday night, one of those nights, I started having consistent contractions and I was like, okay, we're going to have this baby through the night. And so then they ended up fizzling out. So I was like, all right, well, we'll just fine. They ended up fizzling out. The next morning, I started having contractions, and that was when I was going to have the biophysical profile, the ultrasound done, which would also include the non-stress test. So it's like, well, I'm having these contractions, and then once we started having them, they ended up, I called my midwife, and I was like, okay, I think I'm in labor, but they're happening this amount. You know, I'm able to still talk through them, but I just wanted to keep you posted. So she's like, okay, go ahead and let me know. And then they ended up fizzling out. So then we're like, all right, we're just going to up the ante and we're going to stop taking this castor oil. We're not going to do the midwife's brew again, but we're going to start taking blue and black cohosh, which previously had worked for me for my other, my first son. That kind of helped get things dilated and things like that. So we had the physical, the biophysical profile. Everything looked beautiful. His heart rate was great. I mean, I scored an eight out of eight, which is like a perfect score considering you know, he was 42 weeks. They checked the placenta. There was no signs of it deteriorating, no signs of it detaching from the uterine wall. I mean, she was like, everything looks beautiful. I mean, for a 42-week baby, everything looks beautiful. His response, his heart looks great. Everything looks great. He's head down. He's really in there. So, you know, the fact that you're having contractions now. So we were very hopeful knowing the fact that we had I had contractions before And that everything looked beautiful and he was really down in there that this was going to happen. I told my midwife and I shared with her the results and obviously she ended up getting them from the ultrasound tech who did all the tests. And she had said, okay, well, it looks great. I'm glad to hear that. But just so you know that if you don't have the baby tonight or at least by supper time on Wednesday, which was the next day, we're going to have to transfer you based off of the law. But she too was also very hopeful. So it wasn't like this, we'll see what happens. It was just more of like, okay, great. Now it just let's be reminded of this. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So Tuesday, when things did not pick back up, when we ended up, you know, having the full day for contractions to pick back up, took the herbs, nothing even happened there. So then I started back on the castor oil. You're probably like, why would you go back to something so disgusting? Well, I did because I was just that desperate to have a home birth. I was like, we're going to do this. We're going to get the baby out. But I remember having a conversation with my husband on Tuesday night 
We had started the castor oil again, but this time we kind of upped the dose, meaning the volume of which I was having it at one time. And the only thing that that really did, essentially, after so many hours, is that it gave me severe diarrhea, severe diarrhea. And that is really what the purpose is, is that it would kind of encourage some bowel movements that would kickstart labor. And so that's kind of really what we were hoping for because we were just very desperate. I was very desperate. But that night, Tuesday night, we were having a conversation and I was talking to my husband and I had already gone through this mental process and I had told him, I had said, you know, enough is enough. I said, if this doesn't work tomorrow, if I don't go into labor tonight and have him by tomorrow, then I'm going to go in. Like, we're going to be transferred. I'm going to go in. That just has to be it. I said, because there has, there has to come a point where enough is enough, where you have to just say, you know what, for the sake of keeping birth positive and having a good birth experience, even if it is a transfer, even if I do have to go to the hospital to kind of save the mentality behind it. Because right now, I remember telling my husband, I said, because right now I don't have a very good positive perspective. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm annoyed. I'm angry. And I'm frustrated because I'm like, what is going on? Like, why is this not? Why does it keep starting? And then for it to fizzle out, it was just very physically exhausting, but it also was mentally exhausting and emotionally exhausting to have to take all these castor oils, do the shots, do the drinks, do the herbs, wait it out. I mean, it just going to the bathroom a million times. I mean, nobody else is has to endure this. I do. And then I got to do labor on top of that. So I told my husband, I said, just enough is enough. I said, this is my passion. This not particularly having babies is my passion, but birth work is my passion. And I want to always have a positive birth perspective when it comes to having children or encouraging other women to have children. So in order to save that, we just need to say enough is enough. So I, we had made that commitment because I think at that point, my husband understood that it was, we tried everything and we just this is it. And it wasn't even like we need to go because we need help. There was really at no point at that time because there really were no other signs of something else being wrong. We were doing prenatals. He sounded great. I was still great. There was really nothing to really go off of to be like, we need to go to the hospital because we need help. It was more of just, we tried to have a home birth, but it's just not really working out. So now we are falling on our B plan, which was the event that we were transferred and what that birth was going to look like. And so in my mind, I was still even preparing and still even coming up with the plan in my mind and telling my husband, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is how I want things to go. So we had already done those pre-plans. I mean, at that point, we were just like, okay, we were okay with the idea of being transferred. We were okay with the idea of having a hospital birth because we knew that we could still have a good birth experience that we could still have the birth that we essentially really wanted but in a different way there were a lot of different things that you know obviously our kids would not be there but you know everything else in regards to the labor time 
and afterwards we could still have. And, you know, I had a transfer birth plan already ready to go. We were already ready to go to the hospital because we had all packed for the hospital. And I actually had put away like all of our home birth stuff just because that goal and that idea was not even a tangible thing for us anymore at that point. So we were just like, okay, we're letting that go. We have already grieved the fact that we just didn't even, we're not going to have that. And so now we're going to go to the hospital and make the best out of this experience as we possibly can. So we were more accepting to that idea. Well, Wednesday morning, early in the morning, my labor really started to pick up. Things were really starting, you know, contractions were at a good consistent rate. They were lasting for that many longs, even so much so that we called our midwife and she came and she's like, okay, we're going to have this baby. And she was here. But then she's like, as long as you are consistently contracting and we are consistently progressing into labor, we will stay home. She's like, but if at any point that changes, we will leave here today and go to the hospital. And we were like, okay, so we we're almost just like, come on, keep it going <laughs> at that point because it had already started. And so we were like, well, let's keep this going. But then the contractions started fizzling out and they were not happening either as strong or as frequently. And it was just, so my midwife checked me and this was probably one of the first vaginal exams I've ever gotten during this that pregnancy, just because I was very limited on that. I did not want a lot of vaginal exams, particularly even towards the end. And when she did check me at this point, it was all sterile. It wasn't, you know, all those things. So when we, she checked me and she's like, okay, you're about a six. So she had said, but I can hold you open to about an eight. So you're very stretchy, but you're just not staying open to an eight. So she's like, but your water bag is right there, but his head is also there too. So if we break your water, then maybe he'll be able to put that pressure on your cervix to hold you open to an eight and you're like almost done. And I was like, okay. So in my mind, I was thinking, well, I don't particularly recommend anybody break their waters before six centimeters or before eight centimeters. I was only six centimeters. So I'm thinking about all the risk and all the cons and everything like that, everything that could happen in that case. And I knew that once I lost my water bag, that my contractions would be incredibly intense because once you break that water or that water breaks, you lose that cushion. But I took the risk and I said, okay, go ahead and break my water. And so she broke my water. It was clear, no odor, no, nothing alarming happened when that did. So she's like, okay, well, let's just wait a few hours and see what happens. So then contractions start picking up about 45 minutes later and they are intense and they are very strong. And I'm talking like so intense to where I'm like, okay, we are getting progress, almost kind of like okay, you're not at a six anymore. You're more from what we're seeing. You're working as if you're, you are at an eight or more than a six. And these contractions are happening all in the front. So I absolutely had no back labor. They were all in the front. I mean, very hard in the front and things start to really pick up where I'm getting a lot of different contractions that are very intense, almost so that my midwife comes and checks on me because of all the sounds I'm making and how close they are together and how far they are, you know, duration. And she starts getting out her stuff. And so she's like, okay, she's like, well, 
things sound like they're heading in the right direction. So she's like, so then I say, well, let's see kind of what's happening because if, you know, I am holding open or maybe I am close to transition, then, you know, we're good to go. At least we know you breaking my water ended up being a good call. So she's like, okay. She checks me and I'm still a six centimeter. And so at that point she says, okay. She goes, listen, I don't, I know you don't want to hear this, she said, but the fact that we've broken your water, we've tried everything and you're working really hard and your contractions sound and seem to be very intense. She said, this tells me that something's not right and we need to go get help. So I knew, I mean, at first I was very like, no, but then I was like, darn it, we really did try and my kids are all there and have to say goodbye and tell them, okay, we got to go to the hospital. It was all a real hard thing to deal with. A month, like in, in the midst of having contractions, these intense, painful contractions. And I call my parents, they come, they come watch the kids. And let me tell you that car ride to the hospital was probably one of the worst things I've experienced (laughs) because these contractions I had had natural labor before but these contractions were different they were very very intensely painful almost so that I tell people almost so that I literally felt like I was suffering and when we get to a place of suffering and birth that is not a place we need to that's not a good place and we need to have other helpful measures. So I was headed in the right direction and I was just thinking this is almost like I didn't even know what to do with myself anymore. And I'm a childbirth educator. I've done this before many a times, but also too, like I know what to do in these situations, but nothing I'm doing is helping. Nothing, this, I'm I'm suffering. So we're getting close to the hospital and I start to not feel well. I remember pulling up to the hospital feeling like I just do not feel good and meaning like not even just like, you know, I'm in labor and contractions are intense, but just I just don't feel good. Like I feel sick and I just don't feel good. So we get to the labor and delivery room and thankfully the hospital that we were at has midwives and they were absolutely amazing. They were very sensitive to the transfer situation, so much so that they looked at my birth plan and they were like, yeah, this is totally still doable. We can, there are some things on here that of course we can't do because I was already like, yes, I want the epidural. And obviously I need the Pitocin because I need something to hold me open because nothing is holding me open. And so there were some things on there that they were like, obviously, we're not going to be able to get you off the Pitocin because, you know, unless we see before putting you on. So there was a lot of different things that they were like, not a lot of different things, but there were a few things on there that, of course, because of the circumstance that we could not glean from or like lean from particularly. But they said, but everything else looks doable. This is total. This is a great transfer plan. You know, we let's just let's have a baby. So they were very pro- Yes, let's get you this V back. Let's get this again. Let's do this again. And yes, we are totally for this. So thankfully, I was able to get on the epidural and the midwife, the head midwife who was going to be at my birth, she comes in and she says, okay, well, let's just rest. She's like, I want to give you an opportunity to rest. So let's not rush you to get the Pitocin. She's like, let's just give you a few hours of rest. And before we try anything else. 
So we get on the epidural, I'm resting, but then as soon as I get on the epidural, my blood pressure completely tanks and my baby's, you know, uh, heart rate ends up, you know, going kind of along with it. So every time my heart rate tanked, it showed on his end that he was also not responding very well to it. So I'm on the epidural and about a couple hours later, the midwife comes in and she checks me and she's like, oh, you're still at a six, but you're about 80% effaced. So some progress, but obviously not dilated. So then what they do is they're like, okay, let's put her on the Pitocin. And so they didn't even put me on the Pitocin for very long, but what they ended up realizing was I ended up having a fever. Now, sometimes with the epidural that could happen, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an infection, but what they do is that they end up treating it as if you do have an infection. And then what they end up doing is they treat the baby because they've been exposed to the infection. And the epidural, while I'm on it, mind you, gave me really, really bad tremors. Like I was shaking, could not possibly get warm. I mean, I had like so many blankets on me and I was still shaking. So even though I was on the epidural, was not able to get rest because I was constantly shaking. It was very, very uncomfortable. (laughs) So then I get on the epidural and then wasn't even on the epidural for very long, quite honestly, maybe about two hours. And then I, the midwife comes in and she's like, okay, you're about 10 centimeters. Let's go ahead and start pushing. And I was like completely out of it. I mean, zombie-like, could not feel anything. It was just the most weird feeling I've ever felt. And so we start pushing and she's like, okay, you know, with these pushes, you should, he should be coming out by now because of the momentum and things like that. But he wasn't. So she's like, and his heart rate has dropped a few times. And so she showed me the monitor and she shows me, you know, how many times it had dropped and it actually dropped probably more than a handful of times. And so she's like, something tells me with his heart rate and the fact that he's not coming out, even when you're pushing, she said, is tells me that something's not right and I don't want to take a risk. My gut is telling me that something's not right. So I'm like, in my mind, I know what she's saying. I know what she's going to recommend in my mind because I've been there before. And I know, and on the way to the hospital, because of how much pain I was in and how much I was just ready to be done, I just remember thinking, I don't even care right now that I go into a C-section straight into a C-section because of how painful this is, but just because I don't feel good and I'm just ready to be done. And so she, I would kind of wanted her to say it. I kind of wanted her to just outright say like, I'm recommending a C-section because of these reasons. So I just told her, I said, um, well, I said, so what are you recommending? And so she's like, well, I recommend that we go into a C-section. And I sat there for a little bit and I was like, okay. I was like, well, can we try like a different position for me to push? And so she's like, I don't know. She goes, she's like, we can, she goes, I'm not saying that we can't. And then I'm not going to let you, she said, but my recommendation is that we don't because of the amount of heart rates and there's going to come a point where, you know, he's going to go under, his heart rate's going to drop and he's not going to come back up. And so she's like, with this amount of heart rate dropping, you know, and so I was like, 
okay, fine. So it's like, all right, I consent to a C-section. Because in my mind, I was like ready to be done. And I was like, this is my fourth. We're not having any more kids after this. I don't really have to worry about what is this going to do for me in my long term. All the questions and concerns that I had with my first C-section were not there anymore. And because I just was done. And I had already been it in not necessarily in labor for a long time, but just more of like, okay, this is just, we did all that we could. And I kind of was just like, all right, fine. This is how we're going to end it. Fine. So we go into C-section and it wasn't even necessarily an emergency C-section. They weren't like, we need to get this girl on the table stat. It was just more of like, okay, the heart rate's dropping you know, it's dropped multiple times and has dropped significantly multiple times. So we're just going to do this. So then they get in there and they start doing it. But what they end up finding, this is when it things started to turn into a real emergency. What they found was that I had an interuterine infection. Um, they ended up finding out what it was and it was chorioamnitis. And then they found also, too, that my uterus was about to rupture. So there was a window. The doctor, she came and talked to me after the surgery had happened, which was, uh, which is a story that, honestly, the experience that I had at this hospital was probably the best experience that I had probably have ever had had at a, at a hospital. Everybody was super sensitive to our situation, the fact that we were transferred, we're not getting the birth that we had wanted. We're really hoping and really gunning for us to be able to have some type of vaginal birth. And the fact that after my surgery, the doctor, the OB actually came over, the surgeon came over and talked to me and sat with me and explained everything to me and explained what they found and what they did and all this kind of stuff. So it was a really good experience aside from that. But what she had said was the way that she described it was you had this window. She said it was really dangerous. So it was a really dangerous situation. It was so thin that we could see right through it. She said like a trash bag, like think of a trash bag, like or a grocery bag that you get at a grocery store. It's thin. You can see right through. You can see what's in there, in that bag. And she's like, that's how thin it was. That uterine scar from your previous C-section was. It was that thin. So she's like, if you would have have delivered at home or if you would have have pushed here, it would have been a different story. If you would have delivered at home, you would have died. Your baby would have died. And or if you would have delivered here, it would have been a totally different story. And she said, but also the uterine infection, she said it was so bad she goes it was your placenta was infected um the baby obviously was exposed to it so when he came out he had a fever and he was having a hard time stabilizing his blood sugar levels so what they ended up doing was taking him over to the NICU because he needed to be treated with the antibiotics because of the infection that they found and they said it was so bad that it was like pus was like, this might be too graphic. So just this is the only really graphic that I'm going to get in regards to this infection that I had. It was like, they said it was like pus. And obviously the placenta was incredibly infected and he was obviously attached to the placenta. So what they did is they took my baby over to NICU. I didn't even get to see him for, didn't get to hold him because they need to take him over to the NICU immediately. Um, so, I mean, I got to see him and touch his face, but then shortly after that, 
I was in probably the recovery, labor and delivery recovery for 36 hours and the whole entire time. Could not see my baby because I was sick and I was on a very, they were pretty much treating me as I was septus. They said I wasn't septus, but they were treating me as if I was because of the infection got so bad and that if they saw improvements with my temperature, my blood pressure, um, and as well as other labs that they had to get back, then I would be able to go see my baby because right now I can't leave the labor and delivery room. So I go over probably 36 hours, the NICU pediatrician comes over and says, so from what I'm understanding, you know, he'll be on the antibiotics in like 36 hours and, you know, we should be fine. We're just going to take some blood cultures and make sure the next 24 hours nothing grows from it. And then, you know, you'll be able, we'll be able to probably possibly let you have him in your postpartum room. And I was like, okay, as long as we have that. But, you know, my husband is with the baby the whole entire time. But then it comes to find out that when the pediatrician, the NICU pediatrician understands how terrible this infection was and how bad it was from all the OBs that were in the, and all the surgeons that were in the the room when they were dealing with the C-section and the infection and the placenta and stuff, they said that, um, he's like, I need to do a full round of antibiotics on your baby, which is going to be about seven days. So there was, and this is granted, think about, I've not been able to see my baby. I've not been able to hold my baby. I've not been able to talk to my baby. It was a absolute nightmare because that is really what essentially what I could have, not necessarily having a home birth. That was what I really wanted was to be with my baby, obviously, and just to not be able to see him or hold him or be able to nurse him right away or have that skin to skin, that bonding time. Um, that was something that I was not able to have because of this infection and because of the fact, not even because of the uterine rupture, because that had been not, or the potential uterine rupture. It was the infection that this is why I could not be with my baby. And I just did not, we did not understand why there were really no signs of like, you had this infection. Cause they had said, they said, we don't really know how you got this infection because of one, how bad it was. But two, it looked like it had been brewing for a while, but with the other idea of your waters were not broken for a long period of time before you went into the C-section. It wasn't like you had been, your waters had been broken for 12 hours. They were maybe broken for like six hours. And even then, my water did not look bad. It was crystal clear, no odor, no nothing, no concern, I had no fevers. It wasn't until I got on the epidural that I had the fever. So there was really no way of knowing how and for how long I had this infection. And so it was very difficult because my baby was in the NICU. I didn't really even get to see him until 40, 36 hours, close to 48 hours later. And when I saw him, I didn't get to hold him. He was connected to all these wires and stuff. And then in postpartum, the amount of time that I was in postpartum, he wasn't with me. I had to go down to the NICU and had to be with him for a few few hours and then go back up and, you know, holding him. I never really got to, while he was in the NICU, hold him to take him all in. Um, breastfeeding was really difficult because he was being fed through a garage and then they tried the bottle and it, and then obviously because I wasn't having contact with my baby and I wasn't having contact with my baby for long, even attempting to nurse and trying to get my, you know, to get something so that 
at least if he could eat from a bottle, then it would be from me. But I wasn't having that enough contact time with him to be able to get the oxytocin flowing. And, you know, and because I was also on the antibiotics and, you know, for a long period of time after I was being treated with really hardcore antibiotics to prevent septus from happening or from it coming back and kind of rearing its ugly head. And he was also on antibiotics. So just that whole breastfeeding journey was really hard, but particularly the one thing I could not you can prepare for birth. You, I could prepare for those things, prepare for postpartum, prepare even to recover from a C-section. It was just the fact that it was like I could not prepare for the infection that I got because apparently I was really sick, but I also could not mentally and physically and emotionally prepare for NICU, having your baby in the NICU. And that's just something, the NICU is a totally different beast and it's not the idea of not being able to hold your baby and see your baby or when you do hold your baby, you can't really hold them without the wires, without something being attached to them. Um, Any of their needs or anything like that is just kind of being taken care of by you, but also being taken care of by somebody else who's in the NICU. So you kind of feel like, I want to do it. I want to be the one to be there for them. But you have other people who are taking care of him or your child in the NICU, but then also to the possibility of not going home with your baby. That is also a very unreal, unprepared mental thing to go through, an emotional thing to go through and a physical thing to go through. And so thankfully, because my husband and I were very proactive on going and being with the baby and taking care of the baby as much as we could by going to almost every single schedule feeding that they had for him. Um, And obviously me putting him, breastfeeding him as much as I could, as often as I could with him until he could really rely on me to, you know, to eat. And I was pumping and that was something that was so foreign to me because I never... This whole process, I never had to do this before. I'd never had to pump consistently so that I can give my baby milk. I've just always been like, here, let me just put you on my breast and let's breastfeed and you can eat as long as you want, however you want. I've never been restricted on holding my baby, meaning like I could only hold him in this way. Like I couldn't lay with him. I couldn't, there was just certain things in the hospital you can't obviously do, but at the home that you have a freedom to do. I mean, you got to, I had to tell them how long I was feeding him. We had to weigh his output. I mean, it was just a nightmare, something that I just would have never have mentally prepared for. And there were so many times during that whole time that I was like, this is hard. This is hard. This is really, really hard. And particularly there was one point where, because we were being so proactive in doing that, that they, thankfully the NICU nurses and the NICU pediatrician were advocating advocating for us to go to this place called a special nursery where it's considered still the NICU, but it's kind of like a level up. It's for usually for babies who are kind of heading their way out of the NICU, but still need to be monitored on a regular basis, but it allows them to be in their own special room with the parents. So the parents can kind of take over and start feeding and taking care of them, changing their diapers, but not necessarily relying so much on the nurse. So thankfully we were able to do that once I was discharged and it kind of ended up really working out by the grace of God and by the, you know, 
will of God per se and the sovereignty of God because I had to be in the postpartum for like almost five days because I was on the antibiotics and they had to watch me for so many times and because I was on the antibiotics this so many times and then once I got off of it because my labs were great and nothing grew from my cultures my blood cultures that they were like well we need to still watch you over the next 12 hours which means you wouldn't this would be at this time but we can't release you until this time so essentially you wouldn't get out until this time so it ended up kind of blending together where he would be in that special nursery for right when we were going to be transferred out so we essentially just went from one room to the next and he was in there for three days and so essentially or he was in there yeah three days because we got out at four days after that um but it ended up kind of all working out to where we could be with him but even then it was still really hard because I just remember saying to my husband really late at night when I was trying to breastfeed him with all this like wires and like him still learning and you know um, he had already been fed a bottle a few times before I was able to actually like really get some good breastfeeding time with him which was very frustrating but also like NICU is such a this is one thing I can say about the NICU because I'm not really going to go too much into that but the NICU stay is so different then it's such a weird thing. It's in a roller coaster of emotions because you're really thankful that your baby is getting the care that they need and you know that they're being taken care of and you know that this is like a stepping stone into living, them living a life of and thriving or you being able to go home with them or them actually surviving. And, you know, you're very thankful for those things and you know that some of the steps that they take are very crucial But it's also just like, oh, if you would just let me have my baby, then, you know, and but then it's also you feel really sad because that's your child and you feel really sad that there are certain things that you can't do that you wish that you could do or to see your child in this position. And, you know, and so that's just really what it was for me at that point was like, I know we have to do these things. Like, I know he needs a bottle in order for us to be able to move up to this special nursery because they need to know that he can be feeding on his own away from being fed through a tube. Um, So it was like, we need to take those stepping stones. But then at the same time, it was like, I just want more contact with my baby so you guys can see that he can just feed off of me and he'll be fine. But it was like, but they can't measure that. They can't, they can't monitor that. They have to monitor him. So it was like, I can only feed him for this long. Um, 20 minutes. I could only feed him for 20 minutes, no more. And, or I had to tell them how long I fed him for. And so it was just very frustrating. And I just remember it being very hard breastfeeding after so many years, but also breastfeeding in general is a learning curve for every child and for every pregnancy, every birth, every mom with every child. So you're learning how to do that with this child. But then you're also, you got all these wires connected and like IVs and just everything that's kind of getting in the way of you comfortably feeling comfortable to do it or it being successful in the way that you want it to be. So I just remember telling my husband, like, if this is the one thing that I could have, like, can I just have this? Can I just have like breastfeeding? Can I have this? You know, aside from obviously my life and my baby's life, but like in my postpartum, like, can this just be something that I have? Because clearly I did not have anything that I could possibly have wanted. I'd planned for this amazing 
postpartum because I knew this was going to be my last one. And I learned from so many of my other postpartums what to do and what not to do, what was going to work for me, what was not going to work for me, what was going to only benefit me and only going to help me. And so I just remember it being very discouraging because, you know, I didn't get the birth I wanted. I obviously did not get the postpartum I wanted. I didn't get anything that I wanted. Even my plan B never got anything for my plan B because I just was not expecting to have this long NICU stay with my child possibly and not even have this infection and it causing all these other complications, I could say. And thankfully, you know, with how bad the infection was with the uterine rupture, how bad it could have been, whether it's, you know, a, um, a complication for my baby's life or, you know, a not so good outcome where either me or my baby could not possibly be here today. You know, there's a lot of things that could have happened that would have made this a very bad situation, very bad. So I'm very thankful, but at the same time, it's something there's still a lot to process because of how crazy intense it was and what all the things that happen are very heavy stuff. And so I'm still processing all those things. And thankfully, after seven days, my baby and I were able to come home. We were able to take him home. And I think, too, because I do have other children, that was also part of the struggle because it was like I wanted to be home with my children and, you know, that sweet time as a family, you know, with my kids and the new baby, that all got compromised, you know, shortly after. And so we we missed the kids. So that was also the daily struggle because I missed my other kids and I just wanted to be home as a family and <clears throat> just having to tell my kids, you know, mommy's not coming home. She's still really sick or baby's still really sick you know, it was really challenging and really difficult. And, you know, so we were able to get home. But I remember when he got all his wires off and being able to hold him for the first time without them just literally felt like I was meeting him for the first time. It was just, and I got emotional. I remember crying and just being like, you know, hi, you know, like we're done. Like we get to go home. Just kind of that feeling of like, whew, we're done. And I, and I think even from what I remember driving away in the car from the hospital, from the parking structure, it was like, oh, we did it. We're done. Like we are done. And so that was, you know, very, very good to know that after a short period of time that we were, but it doesn't to me from what I've learned is like, it doesn't matter how long your baby was in the NICU. You still have all those that trauma from your baby being in the NICU. And so it's actually taking me a really long time because there's a lot of things that come with your baby being in the NICU and coming from that. And everything that I've experienced, there came a lot of paranoia that came a lot of like, I don't want to go back to the hospital. I mean, it was just, it became really, really challenging because anytime that something was wrong with my kids, it was like, you immediately went to like, even though you know it's like an irrational fear, like something that is not even real because it's a what if. It's a what if is not even real in a sense. And so you are just like so scared of that and you're so paranoid. And it's like, you know, in the back of your mind that that's not even what's really happening. But it's like you have to calm yourself 
down and be like, okay, find peace because this is just, this is not real. This is not what's happening. But that's what it, like, it did to me. And some, and it wasn't even, and I remember a lot of the midwives came in after my postpartum and they were just like, thank you so much for trusting us. Like we're really, you know, just checking in on me, which was like amazing, was so great. I never had had that experience before. I mean, multiple midwives. And there were even some midwives who came in and my husband was like, oh yeah, no, I remember you. And I was like, I don't remember that. I don't remember, like, I don't think we've ever met, but there was like this, almost that's just how out of it I was. And that's just how like, there were times where I didn't even know who was there, who wasn't there. And so a lot of the midwives came in and they were like, thank you so much, you know, and I think in particularly, they were just very much very appreciative of the fact that I trusted them. And they were just so sensitive because they were just more of like, you know, I know this is not the birth that you wanted. So I know that there's a lot of grieving with that. And they had said, because this wasn't the birth that you wanted. And I just remember, and I even still say this today, and this is something, you know, that I will say now is that I'm not even sad that I didn't get the birth that I wanted. Like, I didn't have my baby at home. Like, that's not even why I'm sad. There are multiple other things why I'm sad. Like, there are other things that I'm sad about, meaning, like, the aftermath of it all. And that's what I told them. I said, I'm not even sad that this is how this happened. I'm sad and upset and confused and you know, kind of, you know, have all these other different feelings of because of what was actually there. You know, we wouldn't have known unless we went in there, which it could have made it potentially worse if we didn't. And so that was also pretty scary because it's like that, you know, post-traumatic stress of just like not knowing what could be there, but then, you know, could it be potentially dangerous? So that was just really hard. So even now, looking back, it's been a very tough journey. And when I was talking to Elise and she had said to me, you know, when you read everything, like you think your birth is going to go that way because you prepare to do those things that way. And then they don't end up happening that way. And that's essentially, I mean, that's such a real thing because it's like, I did not I never thought that I would ever get this infection. I never thought that my uterus would ever do that because I've had other children and because it it genuinely has been a long time since I've had between my last child and then this one that I just had. I mean, a long time. You're talking 4 years. And I don't know when that happened. We don't know when I got the infection. We don't know what caused so much of the you know, um, so thin of that previous uterine scar, the old uterine scar. We don't know when that started happening. I mean, my contractions were incredibly painful. So was that a sign that my uterus, that's what was happening? Or, you know, all the things that we tried at home, all the induction stuff, the interventions and everything like that, was that the reason why they weren't working was because of this infection? How did I even get this infection? How long have I even had it? I mean, it just, there's so many questions that I had that I just never really thought because the uterine rupture is less than 1%. Thankfully, I didn't have it 
a rupture, but I was on the verge of having one. And the the chorioamnitis happens in between 1% and 5% of women in their pregnancies. And somehow I ended up falling into that. So you kind of just, there's a lot of unknowns that I have. And you just think that there are things that you're like, I did everything right. I, we did this, we did that, we prepared this way, but then this, we didn't get the birth that we had wanted. And so there's still a lot of grieving that's going along with this in all honesty. And not to say that it's okay because grieving is okay, but what happened also too is just, it's not to say like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll, you're going to be okay. Cause that's not what it is either. It's kind of a, it's really hard to explain, which is why I was kind of hesitant to talk about this and to share this with you because I'm still processing it. And there is birth sometimes is not, doesn't always have a very joyful outcome, but I am thankful. I'm thankful for my life. I'm thankful for my son's life because both, either of those things, if I would have had a uterine rupture or the the chorioamnitis could have caused a lot more serious damage than what it did and possibly death. So I'm very thankful that I'm alive, my son is alive, and we're all healthy now, that we're not still sick, and that it didn't end up amounting to something that could have been potentially, you know, more serious. So I'm very thankful for that. But two, and also I had a really great experience in the hospital, all the staff, all the postpartum nurses, all the midwives. And I know that not everybody has that same, that same opportunity does not have that same blessing and resource of having a hospital in their area where the midwives and the staff are absolutely amazing. I literally have no complaints. But the one thing that I do know and that I've learned from the situation is you know, sometimes it has really nothing to do with the people themselves that are caring for you at the hospital that make it constricting or make it just not good. Sometimes it's the standards and the procedures. And that's unfortunate because it's the standards and the procedures of what they do sometimes or why they do it or why they recommend it or why they make these calls. It's just that's what, it's not them themselves. It's the standards and the procedures that make it very frustrating, very frustrating. So that was what I learned. But it was also a really good refresher to me in regards to C-section because it just made me hate them so much more. But then it also made me really thankful for them because they can be life-saving. But the thing is, is what makes it, sometimes it's time that gets these women into C-sections, but it's like C-sections compromise the uterus. They compromise the muscle. And so just opting into a C-section for really no medical emergency, but just for the sake of time or something that's like not even a real thing, but it's just easy and convenient or the fact that they don't providers don't want to wait it out or they don't they're trying to meddle in the the system or into the process and that's the reason why they have to go for a c-section because of that meddling it's just very frustrating the impact that it will have on that mom later on in life if they want to have more children and so it was a really good refresher in that sense 
And I think lastly, what I learned in this situation is, and what I can share with others is, the only time when you should feel forced to say yes to anything is if you are you have no other option but to say yes. And I mean that in a sense of, yes, it's going to save your life or yes, we need to do this in order to accomplish this goal that you have, that you have. But the goal obviously is for you to have your baby and for you to be alive and your baby to be alive. But the only time when you should ever say yes to any interventions, to any surgery, anything, is when you have no other option but to say yes. Not because you're being held down in a corner or being cornered to do it, but because that is literally your only option that is going to have the best outcome that and is going to accomplish your goal that is running on the lines of your goal. So that is really the only thing that I can really share from this experience as of right now. And it's something that I'm still processing. And I mean, I guess what I'm trying to convey here is that birth can be traumatizing even when you do everything right. You cannot get what you want in your birth even if you prepare and do everything right. But two, that it's okay even if your life is saved and you're healthy and your baby is saved and your his or her life is healthy, then it's still okay for you to grieve and to still process this. And it's also okay for you not to share. I mean, this is probably one of the first times that I'm really sharing my experience since it actually happened. And I'm not going to sit here and lie and say, I'm all better now because there are days where it's still really hard. There's certain aspects that I still really grieve. I mean, just a couple of nights ago, I was grieving about a particular part of that experience that I didn't get. And in all honesty, I have paused this podcast multiple times to to take a minute, almost to take a breath or to let out like a few tears and kind of just gather myself up again because it's still a really hard thing to share and it's still a really hard thing to have to process. Um, so I hope with all those things, if you are somebody who's experienced you know, post-traumatic stress from birth and all those types of things, it's still, even now, even if it's been years later, it's still okay to still grieve that. But there are a lot, three things that I'm super, super thankful for. I'm super thankful for, and what I can know really helped me during this time, and what I encourage anybody, if they're going through this, have experienced a traumatic birth or have gone through it, that these are three things that I recommend that you get right away to help yourself and to help you move on and to move on in a way that is going to heal you. The first one is get help, meaning talking to some type of birth trauma therapist or somebody who can, even if it's just one time, one time, to share your story and to almost walk through it in a way to where you can actually put it down, process it, put it down and be and heal from it. That's one thing I can definitely recommend is finding some type of birth trauma therapist. Two is get a good support team behind your back in those times where you are going through it because I had so many people in my corner step up and legitimately help us, help, you know, 
keep things going on the home front side while my husband and I were in the hospital taking care of our baby. But also having people who are in your corner who are supporting you, meaning staff, birth providers, midwives, OB, whoever. Get somebody who is going to support you, but also friends, family. Have people help you. This is a time where you need help. So take the help when somebody wants to give you help. We had so many people who helped us take care of our children, watch our children at a drop of a hat, drop their lives to come and help us. We had people who made us meals after, who really nourished us and provided for us in that period of time of adjusting and then readjusting. So get the support that you need. Lastly, just tell your story. I know it's hard, but this is going to help you so, so much. Tell your story and know too that the postpartum that you possibly wanted but didn't get, I mean, if you are somebody who did not get the postpartum that they had wanted, that does not necessarily mean that you can't have it. Meaning after everything is done that you can't do that because that was something that I really did grieve. I was like, I this is not how I wanted my postpartum. But then once everything was done, it was kind of like that's where I picked up on my postpartum. The resting, the nourishing, the bonding time, the holding time, the breastfeeding time, all those things, the family time, like we kind of picked up where when once everything kind of settled down. And I mean, even after that week, it took a while because a lot of other things had happened with our family afterwards within the last, you know, the month of June was very hard. The first four weeks of postpartum were very hard, but there were times in between where I did take it, I did implement the postpartum plan that I'd wanted and that I'm still working on. So you can still have those things as well. So, well, mama, that is all that I have for you today. And in sharing my birth story and all those things, and I hope that you find some nugget of encouragement or know that I am wrapping my arms around you and hugging you and possibly crying with you if you've been through the same traumatic experience when it comes to birth and are also in the process of healing. I will see you next time. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to this great episode. If you had learned something today, please make sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts and share with another mom friend. Also, pop on over to our private Facebook group, sign up for our email list, and connect with me on social media, which are all linked in the description of this podcast. I can't wait to see you over there and connect with you. Now go listen to your mom gut because wisdom will guide you and chances are it won't let you down. Until next time, cheers.